Now we read the Holy Scripture. Scripture reading is Romans chapter 15, the first 21 verses. Romans 15, beginning at verse 1 and reading through 21, the rest of the chapter is Paul's explanation of his desire to visit Rome. He had not yet, he intends to, but is not able to yet. That's what comes after the reading. This is God's Word in Romans 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again, he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, O ye Gentiles, and laud him, O ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope, through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem... And round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. That's the reading of the chapter. The text is verse 14, a relatively unfamiliar verse in a very familiar book. 
where Paul says, and I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Because this is an unfamiliar verse, let me read it once more. Paul says to this new church in Rome, many of whom were young Christians, I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. A relatively unfamiliar text in a very familiar book. I have in my classroom at seminary what I might call a little gizmo on my desk that the students can see, a little piece of machined metal that I have no idea what it's for. I found it on a walk one time, decided to pick it up because it was shiny and looked interesting. And I use that little gizmo as an illustration of the fact that when you preach a text without showing the text in its context, the text is of very little use. Just as if I would take that little gizmo and spend 45 minutes expounding, if I were a machinist or a scientist, what it was made of, its density, its weight, its length, the taper to a point that it has, the little gear mechanism that it looks like it has on the bottom, at the end of which 45 minutes the students would say, that's very interesting, but what's it for? And I would say, I don't know. And they would conclude they have just wasted 45 minutes learning about something they have no idea it's about. Well, some texts, not all of them, some texts are almost without profit unless you understand them in their context, just as it would be very profitable to know what that little gizmo was for in whatever machine it came out of. Well, this text is like that. It's important to see that in the book of Romans, this text is in the last part of the book, chapters 12 through 16. The first part we often refer to as the doctrinal foundation, and the last part, 12 through 16, the practical conclusion, doctrine, practice. From a certain point of view, that belittles the importance of the second part of the book, as though the doctrinal is very important and the practical you could just as well do without. It would be better to look at the book of Romans as the first half being what Christ has done for us and the second half of what Christ does in us. Or the first half, perhaps more specific to Romans, justification, and you know that's the subject there at heart, and the second half of the book, or part, sanctification. The first half, redemption accomplished. The second part, redemption applied. The renewal by the Spirit of Christ, of God's people, and the conforming them into the image of Christ. Now, you begin to understand the importance of this second part of the book of Romans. Now, to take this reasoning one step further, and then we'll get on to the sermon The truth of the matter is that this work of God in us is accomplished by the Apostle's Word, His exhortation and admonitions, all of which come in this section. 
I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's an exhortation, what you ought to do, how you ought to live, and then read through the rest of the chapter. There are some negatives. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And then it proceeds into chapter 13 with regard to our relationship to the state, how we ought to pay taxes and honor the government. And then into chapter 14, that we ought to support the weak and not receive them to doubtful disputations. And 15, where we began reading, is a continuation of that. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. And all of these things are exhortations and admonitions as to how we ought to live. And I say again, God works this in us by the preaching of the Word. When we get to our text, the apostle says, as it were, I'm finished. Although there are more things to say, I'm not going to say them because you are able to do that. That's the text. I'm persuaded that you also, brothers, are able to admonish one another. I'm going to stop, but you continue speaking the Word of God to one another, though you're not preachers, in such a way that from the Word of God, God will be pleased to make you, members of the church, a blessing to the other people. And that's significant. Admonitions that came from the minister... Paul, now come from the people. You remember what the canons, the canons of Dort say about that. God works the work of sanctification in us by the promises, exhortations, and admonitions of the Word. You hear that word admonitions? That's the word in the text. You're able to admonish one another. And then in another place in the canons, grace is conferred by means of of admonitions. And this text says those admonitions come from here, the pulpit, but also from there and all of the members. So let me explain this text under the theme, every believer's ability to admonish, and point out in the first place the amazing truth behind that, in the second place the implied calling to admonish one another, and then in the third place the needed confidence for us in that calling, the amazing truth, the edifying calling that's implied in this text, and then the needed confidence by the time we get to the third point that will hardly be necessary. The amazing truth in this text is very simply a repetition of what the text says. The believers in the church are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. All the members of the church, you, 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 are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. There are three things that we can take out of that little bit longer statement to highlight that are absolutely amazing. In the first place, you, people of God, have goodness in you and knowledge in you. And when Paul says you're full of goodness, He's not saying that I've seen good works you've performed because he hadn't. He hadn't been there. 
And he's not saying, I've heard reports of the things you've done. That's not his point, because even unbelievers can do works that apparently are good. Paul is not talking about the superficial. He's talking about what's inside. And he's saying, what's inside you is goodness. Goodness that makes the production of good works possible. Goodness, moral goodness, ethical goodness, a disposition and a character that's described by the Word of God as good, mercy, grace, kindness, desire to bless, and so forth. And when he says you're full of knowledge, he's not talking about the kind of superficial knowledge that he said in the beginning of the book, even the unbelievers have knowledge of God. They know God. He's not talking about the kind of knowledge that the devil has, which knowledge makes him tremble. He's not talking, therefore, about the kind of knowledge that you young people learn in catechism if the knowledge stays in your brain, the kind of knowledge that could enable you to go to the consistory and answer all of the questions properly because you've been listening. He's not talking about that kind of knowledge. He's talking about that kind of knowledge that's deep in your heart, the knowledge of love, the knowledge of faith. Think Lord's Day 7. What's faith? It's knowledge. The kind of knowledge the Bible describes that a man has of his wife, the result of which sometimes she's with child. That kind of intimate knowledge is in you. And that's first in the amazing truth. There's goodness in you and knowledge in you. But it gets more amazing. And the second part of that truth is that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. He's not saying there's a little bit of goodness in you and a little bit of knowledge in you. He's saying this is the description of you all the way to the top. Your relationship to goodness and knowledge is described by that word. Now listen to how that word, these words, are used in other places of the Bible. First, a couple of negative examples. This word is used to describe a wicked man whose eyes are full of adultery. That is, there's nothing else in view of his eyes. Or of a drunken man who's full of wine. It permeates him. It controls him. Or an unrighteous man who's filled with malice and envy and strife and deceit, so that you say there's nothing positive that exists in him. Or to be positive, this word is used to describe what happened with the disciples when all night long they were fishing with a net on this side of the boat. Every time they pulled it up, it came up empty. And Jesus said, cast it on the other side of the boat. And when they pulled it up, it came up full, full. That's the word used to describe the relationship of goodness to you, to you, full of goodness. The word used to describe knowledge is a little bit different, but very similar, and now I'm emphasizing spread. Imagine, and this is how the word is used in the Bible, lighting uh, incense in this room. It's a big room, but it wouldn't take very long before all of you in that corner and all of you in that corner could smell it. You couldn't get away from it. Or think of what 
happened when the disciples were in the upper room at the day of Pentecost, and that noise was heard of the mighty rushing wind. It filled the room. You couldn't go anywhere in the room without hearing that. It's the same word to use to describe the knowledge of Jesus in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was filled with his teaching. You went here, and you heard about Jesus. You went all the way to that corner of Jerusalem, and you'd hear about Jesus. Now, I think I've made the point that that's the word used to describe our relationship to goodness and knowledge. Filled to the brim, through and through, controls, pervades, dominates. It can't be ignored. And then in the third place, it even gets better. This is true not just of a few, but of everyone, believers. Everyone. The elders might think, well, this applies to ministers who've been trained. No, to you. And the members of the church might think, well, only the office bearers can be described this way. And the answer is no, you too all of you members, and maybe the women might imagine, well, men, perhaps, and the answer is no, you too, women. And you children might say, well, this describes adults, my parents. And the apostle says, no, I'm talking to all of you. And even to take it another step, the new Christians might say, well, this would apply to those who grew up in Judaism, learned the Old Testament, are knowledgeable of all of the things of the kingdom, But not to us new Christians, Paul would say, no, you also. You, you, and you. And what makes this beautiful and underlines the truth of it is that the apostle Paul says this. Paul, the man who in his youth was sent to Jerusalem from Tarsus south to be trained under Gamaliel, the most capable Old Testament scholar that lived in that day and spent his life learning the Old Testament. And then when he became a Christian, spent three years in the wilderness, one-on-one with Jesus in a kind of seminary training, one-on-one. That man says to the congregation at Rome, the new Christians in that congregation, I'm persuaded of you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness and filled with knowledge able to admonish. Now, I said that's an amazing truth. If I preach this in an Arminian church, people would say, ho-hum, we've known that because we've always believed that everyone has goodness in them and probably a lot of goodness in them. We're born good. But I am preaching this in a Reformed church that teaches emphatically a doctrine that's called total depravity. And that makes it amazing for us. And makes us ask, is the preacher tonight denying a fundamental truth of the Reformed faith, the first in our order of the five points of Calvinism? Is he denying that truth of total depravity? If you put this in terms of the Roman Christians, the Roman Christians might say, but Paul, uh, we just heard you say in the beginning of the book that men are so corrupt that 
and you quoted the Old Testament in it too, that in their mouths is the poison of asps. There's no good in them. And in fact, Paul, didn't you even say about yourself in chapter 7, and of course I know this, in verse 18, that in you dwells no good thing. How now, Paul, can you say that we are full of goodness and filled with knowledge? That's a puzzle to them, and it probably is a puzzle to some of us, which puzzle is easily solved by listening to the text. On the surface, you don't need to know the Greek to understand what Paul is saying. It's very clear. There's no question of translation or original reading. It says it. But you do need to know Greek to understand this, and you can understand this too. The form of the word is in a way, is, the word is put in the form, well, let me just say it. It's the perfect passive participle. Now you say, I learned English in school, but I didn't really like it, and I don't remember it. Perfect simply means past tense. But that has a result in the future and now. And passive means I didn't have anything to do with it. In other words, what I am now is not what I used to be. What I am now is a result of something that happened between then and now, and the passive indicates you didn't do it. You are not responsible for what you are now, the change from your past to your present. And all of that is to say what everyone understands, what we were born as, depraved and only depraved, dead and unable to do any good, absent of any goodness, is not true of us anymore because something happened to us. Some work was performed upon us. And it's simply the truth of regeneration where God came to me and you, if we're Christians, and did something to us. And what He did was filled us with the life of His own Son, gave us Jesus. What we are filled with is the life of Jesus. Jesus is the goodness of God. Jesus is the knowledge of God. And if we have Jesus in us, we have goodness and knowledge in us. And that's the simple truth of the text. So that, be very clear here, we are not denying the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity says that the non-Christian has nothing good in him. And the doctrine of total depravity even applies to me as regards my old nature and says that in my flesh there dwells no good thing. That's what Paul meant in Romans 7 verse 18. He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, in that old man, that old nature of me dwells no good thing. But he also now is making very clear that you are not only your flesh, you also have a new man, and that is the Spirit in you. And you have another life in you. And that's why you can read in the book of Ephesians, for example, we were dead and now are quickened. And in Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. 
old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's a description of you and me as Christians. Now behind that amazing truth are two very important, broad, biblical doctrines. The first one of which the Reformation called the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers is the doctrine that whereas in the Old Testament there were only a few priests, in the New Testament we're all priests. Everyone who's a believer is a priest. And that's broadened out to mean that whereas in the Old Testament there were only a few who could serve in the function of a priest and a prophet and a king, in the New Testament all of us do. Think of the Old Testament for a moment. Think of the prophets. Very few had the kind of knowledge of God that enabled them to speak to the prophet of other people. Prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, others earlier, a few later. For the rest, the people were very little and not very able. Think of the priests, Aaron and Samuel and others who were permitted to sacrifice in order to break down symbolically the big barrier between the people and God so that the priests were able to take the people by the hand and lead them into the presence of God by way of that sacrifice. This removes the barrier. Only a few of them were able to do that. Four others. The rest of them were very small. And you think of kings able to do exploits, strong, and fight battles for the people of God. Think David. Think the judges, Samson, and so forth, were able on behalf of God for the other people of God to gain great victories for others. And the rest of the people, most of them were very small. And that's not true in the New Testament. And that was prophesied. That's not the case in the New Testament. We all are. That was prophesied in a marvelous incident when Israel first came out of the land of Egypt, parked at the southern tip of Sinai Peninsula. Everyone set up their tents, Moses included, and they began to come to Moses, the prophet, and the judge, the king, for counsel. And you can imagine the line snaking from the door of his tent Probably that maybe was days long before they could come to him to get counsel for them in their troubles. And there came to a point in Moses' life very soon that he said to God, I can't do this. I simply can't bear all of the people's cumbrances and burdens and stripes. I need help. So God took the spirit that was on Moses, put it on 70 elders so that they were assistants to him. They were also able to help others. And two of them were prophesying out in the camp, and a young man imagined that that was wrong for them to be way over here in the camp prophesying, and he ran to report to Moses that they're prophesying over there, and the, mar- the, the response of Moses is marvelous. I would to God that everyone was a prophet. And that little prayer of Moses, marvelous prayer, was answered in the New Testament at Pentecost when Everyone became a prophet and a priest 
and a king. The priesthood of believers. We sometimes think that that doctrine means that we have rights, and maybe the right to object to a decision of the consistory or a sermon of the minister. And of course, it means that we have that right. But the doctrine of the priesthood of believers that makes all of us prophets and priests and kings is so marvelous and gives us abilities and qualifications that no one generally in the Old Testament had. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And your servants and your handmaids, the little girls too. And the second general big doctrine that this text brings out, we've already seen, but I want to emphasize it now, and that is what we are now as Christians is different from what we were before we became Christians. We are alive, able to do good. When I teach catechism in the churches, I usually ask to teach the Heidelberg Catechism and the Essentials classes because in the vacant churches, I prefer that. And in those vacant churches, and and many of them in the past 20 years I've taught, and of course in the Heidelberg Catechism, you begin at Lord's Day 1, and very quickly you get to Lord's Day 3 in the doctrine of total depravity. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil? And the answer is, indeed we are comma. And I asked the young people at the beginning of the class period, are you able to do any good? And you should see them get nervous. No one wants to answer. They're scared. Their eyes go down. They hope I ask someone else, are you able to do any good? Do you have any good in you? That's even more important. And that makes them more nervous. And then I ask them this question that helps them see the right answer to that question. Are you alive in Christ? Or are you dead? And then the light goes on. And they realize what comes after that comma. Indeed, we are so corrupt, wholly incapable of doing any good. Indeed, we are, except... We are regenerated by the Spirit of God. You are alive, not dead as Christians. You can do good because there is in you goodness. Christ is in you. Which means you, all of you, are able to do what Paul was doing in Romans 12 through 15, verse 14, when he says, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to stop exhorting and admonishing and calling you to the Christian life, God's means to work sanctification in you, and I'm going to give that over to you. Now, we'll face in a moment whether that means this position behind the pulpit is not necessary, and it does not mean that. It only means that you have that calling 
an ability to, to admonish one another. You're able to do that. Admonish in the Bible, though, means something more than you better not be doing that. And usually we think of the word admonish that way. Dad comes to you when you're not doing what you ought to be doing and he admonishes you. Mom rebukes you for not being respectful to her or to the teachers. We think admonish just has that narrow negative sense. And it does have that narrow negative sense. And that's part of what it means in this text. You have the ability to do that one to another. Think of how that word is used in the New Testament. The Old Testament history, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, was written for our admonition. And that comes right after all these warnings. Israel committed fornication in the wilderness. You ought not. Israel lusted after the things of Egypt in the wilderness. You ought not do that. Israel, and then fill in the blanks. And there comes the warnings and admonitions. The Old Testament was written for our admonition. Paul says to reject a heretic after the first and second admonition. A heretic is someone who's preaching false doctrine. You warn that man. You threaten that man. You say, if you don't stop, we're going to put you off the pulpit and out of the church. You admonish that man. So that word is used in the Bible in that sense. And if you read Romans 12 through 16, you'll find some of those warnings, warnings. There's a word that's just like that, not the very same word that Jesus used in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, you go to that brother alone and you tell him his fault. That's one word in the original. It's a word very similar to this, tell him his fault, means reprove, convict, convince of sin. Jesus showed us that our calling with sinners is to admonish them in that narrow, negative sense. So that you young people, if you have a friend who's dating and is committed in that dating relationship to one person and you see your friend flirting with others of the opposite sex, you ought to say something to him or her about that. And not yet with a wagging finger, but with a very serious tone in your voice, this isn't proper. Admonish. If you know someone who's gossiping and backbiting and you hear it, you mustn't just step back and say, man, I don't like that. You need to step forward and with serious, kind, but stern words warn about the sin of backbiting, slander, and gossip. But this word admonish, you also have the ability to admonish one another, doesn't always have that narrow negative sense. It also has a very broad and positive sense. It's the word in the original that simply means to put into the mind of someone. You could think of the word remind Re-mind. Put it into their mind again. That's where our word re-mind comes from. Admonish, if you know anything of Latin, means just that. To place to or to put to. And then it's broad. 
you may put into the mind of your neighbor all kinds of things that are positive. And that's why, and we can remind ourselves of this on Father's Day, the fathers are warned not to provoke their children to wrath, but raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that's not a calling for the dads always to be rebuking their children, though that's included. It's everything that fathers are called to do to teach their children. Or think of Colossians 3, verse 16, where Paul says that when we sing the Psalms, we teach and admonish one another. Now, I can think of a few Psalms that have us singing, rebuking those to whom we're singing, but there aren't very many Psalms like that. And that's because when Paul says you teach and admonish one another in in the singing of Psalms, you're encouraging each other. You're blessing one another. You're quickening hope in the neighbor and so forth. You're teaching them. Now you look at the book of Romans 12 through 16 and you say the book is full of that kind of instruction and admonition. Right before our text, the apostle says, and this is him winding down, now the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. Joy, peace, faith, hope, love are all things that we want to aim at as we speak to the neighbor. You're able to do that in such a way that the words you speak under the blessing of God are a power to help your neighbor. The words you speak, let me say that again so that it sinks in, The words you speak under the blessing of God are God's power to help the neighbor. And you're all able to do that. The words you speak as a prophet, teaching, maybe warning. The words you speak as a priest so that you take the people of God who need to be led to God by way of Christ profitable under the blessing of God for them. The words you speak as a king with the sword of the Spirit in the battle of faith can be a prophet to the neighbor who is wounded and fallen in sin. The words you speak can be a blessing to others and you're all able to do it. To encourage the discouraged to help the depressed, to minister to the one who's lost his spouse by death or divorce, those who endure pain or opposed by their family, trouble in their marriage, you, all of you, are able to be a blessing to the others. To make this very practical, I want to speak to different groups in the congregation and begin perhaps where it's surprising to begin addressing the elders. You are able to help others with the words that you speak. You must not say, well, we can't wait until the minister gets back from his vacation because we have people who have needs. No, you are able 
And to us as a congregation then, we mustn't say that in our troubles we have two options. We go to the minister or we look in the directory to find a professional counselor. No, the elders are where you ought to go. And that's not to say that they can do everything that you need, but it is to say your business is with them for help, for help to comfort and encourage and instruct and teach and everything else the child of God needs in his life. You go to the hospital elders and visit the dying with the word of God. That's a blessing to them. Incompetent though you may feel, it's a blessing to them. Go to the depressed and bring the word of God to them. Of course, carefully preparing and give them hope. That's a blessing to them. You go to the wayward, those who aren't here tonight but ought to be, and you bring a word to them, and that under the providence, the good providence of grace of, and grace of God is a blessing to them. And then we broaden out to all of the members. When Bible study starts again in the fall, you go, you hear the leader read the word, you have him ask questions, you are able in those settings to speak to one another. You aren't required to. Some are able to speak more than others, but all of you, all of you ought not be afraid of doing what the Word of God encourages you to do. You young people are able to do that. As young people, when you go to the convention this summer, God willing, and we took a collection for that cause tonight, I'm very thankful for that. Conventions are very important events in our churches. I hope you go. When you go, you may see someone acting in a way that they ought not behave. You're able and you're called to go to them and speak to them. Or you may see someone who has needs that are not like your needs, special needs, and you are standing in your happy group, oblivious to just about everything, and you see on the other side of that group someone standing by themselves. You have to open up that group, and as it were, walk over there and embrace that person and speak to that person. And the words that you speak are in the goodness of God, able to be a blessing to them. You're able, able to put into the minds of them words that give them hope and express love and quicken them in all of the other virtues and comforts of the gospel. You're able to do that. Fathers, when you, at the end of the meal or the beginning of the meal, once a day at least, have devotions with your family, you open the Bible, you know that's your duty, and you read it. Don't immediately close it, but keep it open. And with the gifts that God has given you, look at the words and the expressions and see where this passage is like other passages and discuss it and apply it with your family. You are able to do that, called to do that. In, in the goodness of God, the words that you speak are a blessing to your wife and to your children. You mustn't be afraid of that. 
And all of us understand this, but very few understand it like a mom understands this. A mother of children has spent her whole life doing this. Of course she has. From the time the baby was conceived in her womb, she was praying for that baby. And as soon as that baby was born, and even before she was singing the word of God to that little one, and as soon as that little one got old enough to put his hands together and fold them and make prayers, I'm sorry, God, for my sin. Please forgive me. She was leading that little one by the hand through the cross and sacrifice of Jesus Christ into the presence of God. Of course, moms know that. That's been their work from the time their children were little. You moms don't need to be reminded of this, but maybe you need to be reminded that when your children are grown, you have the ability to look at the young moms and help them. And the words that you speak not just from your experience, but from the Bible, or in the providence and goodness of God to be a blessing to others. A caution, that which comes out of you must be that which filled you. That is, if the goodness and knowledge in us are Christ in us, what those here to whom we speak must hear Christ come out of us. You lead them to God through Christ. You lead them to Christ for power to fight against sin. You teach them the truth and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this and this alone will be a blessing to the members in the congregation. There are questions that this teaching raises we don't need to answer all of them. You might imagine that by teaching that everyone is a prophet, priest, and king, we don't need this prophet and those priests in the deacon's bench or those kings in the elder's bench, but that's not true. This passage is simply teaching that in addition to the special offices, you and you and you have these general offices and abilities. You might ask, well, does this make unqualified people counselors? Is everyone going to imagine that he has the ability to help everyone in all their problems? And the answer is, of course not. There are certain spheres where we need those who are specially trained and qualified to help us, Christians. And you say, well, does this mean that we're all automatically able to do it? that without any catechetical instruction or learning from the sermons were able to be a blessing to others? And the answer there too is, of course not. To the extent that you stand with Jesus and listen to Jesus in the preaching and in catechism and in your own personal devotions, to that extent, you are able, you have the capacity to be a blessing to others. And if I can give my own personal experience in that, I find often that when someone calls me for help and I don't have time to prepare, what help I give them is the very word I used and read in my own devotions that morning. This is how God spoke to me today. 
I want you to read with me that word, and all of you are able to do that to the extent that you open the Word of God. Well, those are some of the questions. Let me remind us of the dangers of not listening to this. You know a man who has a drinking problem and you don't say anything. He does. And you are silent. And five years later, that man's marriage breaks up because that alcohol loosened the governors on his eyes so that he was looking at other women and loosened the governor on his tongue so that what he said to his wife was so damaging to her. And five years ago, you didn't say anything. And this word of God warns you. You're able and you are called to. You know of someone else who has children who, though they're cute, they're rascals, little children, who run around like nobody's business. They're the ones that the old people are afraid out there of tripping over because they're running between their legs and through their walkers. And though they're cute now, little rascals, in a few years they're going to be big rascals. And that's not going to be cute anymore. And when they were little rascals, you didn't say anything to the mom in love and to the dad in love about what they ought to be doing because you said, well, they ought to know better or whatever your reason may have been. You have the ability and you have the calling at times in a very loving way to admonish others. The warning for failure is not as important as the reminder of what a blessing this will be when all of the people of God understand this truth and are busy in it. Your minister is coming home from his trip to Loveland this week, I think. He can't handle everything in First Church. And I remind you that when Moses cried for help, he wasn't crying for help to God for teaching catechism. They had that covered in the Levites. They did that. Moses needed help from others. And Moses prayed that everyone eventually would be able to help others in their cumbrances and burdens and strifes. That's why they were lined up in his door. And when you and you and you and all of us are busy in this, imagine the joy of the minister and the elders who are able to take the most difficult cases for themselves and for the rest, the people of God are all helping one another in the renewed life of sanctification and godliness. We're all doing that. Then 
outside counselors, though they may be used at time, are not the immediate and only alternative for us. All the people of God will be supplementing that work with ministry of the Word to the people of God. And then, I love to think of this, women, women will be called, maybe not officially, maybe not even by a telephone call or a request from the consistory, but women, women will hear this call and have confidence to use their gifts for the blessings of other members. Read Romans after what we read tonight and hear the Apostle Paul addressing his gratitude to God for some women in the church. And start with Phoebe, who was a servant of the church, and hear his expression of gratitude to God for that woman and her work. If all of us understood this and lived that way, there would be many Phoebes. And now listen to the other names, and Miriams, and Deborahs, and Lydias, and Hannahs, and Marys, and Priscillas, and Marthas, and Dorcases, and Tabithas in the church of Jesus Christ, because everyone is using their gifts, men and women, and old people, and children, and office bearers, and every member for the advantage and salvation of others. And this is the most important part. When we do, Christ will be heard among us. The word of Christ will be coming out of all of us. All of us. And when it is, the sanctification of the church will increase. The holiness of the people of God will grow. The love of the saints for one another will mature. And the church will be what God calls the church to be. People of God, I'm persuaded of you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge, able to do this work. Is there need anymore to remind you of that, to persuade you of that? There is a question, though, and now we conclude the sermon. Why did Paul not simply say you are able? because you have goodness and knowledge in you. But he said, I'm persuaded of you. Probably because he knew that they would doubt and cower and hesitate and fear and always back up thinking someone else perhaps can or we need to wait for the minister to go to Jerusalem bring the collection, come back on his way to Spain and stop over in Rome. And when he comes here, he's going to be able to do what we need. No, Paul says, I'm persuaded, and you must be too, and have this confidence that by the grace of God, men and women and young people and children and servants and handmaids are able to be a blessing to all the other members, to the honor of God, the building up of the church and the exaltation of Christ who is in you. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. May it be a power to bless us. And may it be in us so that we are able to speak to others about it. Use our words, Father, to be a blessing 
to others in the church. And if there are those walking in sin whom we know, open our mouths and may we never hide thy word from them. And if there are those who are discouraged, cast down, alone, doubtful, hopeless, fearful, enable all of us to speak to them so that this congregation may be a shining bright light. Forgive us, Father, when we have sinned in that. Deliver us from evil. For Jesus' sake, amen.